Hello and welcome to this special podcast from the Banker at the Asian Development Bank annual meeting. I'm Kimberly Lung, Asia Editor at the Banker, and I'm speaking with Albert Park, Chief Economist of the ADB. Albert, thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here. To begin with, you've pointed before to China's reopening as having a big impact on developing economies in the region. Have we seen this materialize? Well, China's reopening has definitely led to a consumption boom uh, in China in certain sectors. But in terms of translating to beneficial spillovers to the rest of the region, I think um, still limited. Uh, Hopefully it will increase uh, by later in the year if the recovery in China continues apace. Uh, So specifically, um, employment and incomes in China are kind of recovering uh, sluggishly. And we have not really seen a big increase in import demand. In fact, growth in import demand has actually slowed in the most recent data. Uh, Part of this is because I think Chinese consumers with the zero COVID policy behind them have really focused on getting out and about and the transport sector, hospitality sector, uh, real estate sector, retail. These have done pretty well in China. But it hasn't translated into a big increase in demand for exp- uh, for imports. The other um, area where we hope China can contribu- contribute to growth in the region is through an increase in Chinese tourists visiting other countries. Uh, we estimate that before the pandemic, something like 18% of tourists in Asia were coming from China. The first quarter data shows that the tourism in East Asia has is still about two-thirds below where it was uh, before the pandemic. So some recovery, but we're still, I think, still in the early stages. And the rest of Asia has been recovering in terms of tourism, but we haven't yet seen a big spike up from the Chinese tourists. So I think that will take more time. Uh, Chinese consumers um, still perceive quite a lot of uncertainty, uh, and it's only when they start to see employment, incomes recover, and uh, gain confidence that I think we'll start to see more benefits coming from China. So we're hopeful that uh, that will happen later in the year. But um, so far, manufacturing sector growth still remains uh, pretty sluggish. Of course, part of that is weak external demand coming from the richer economies. But it's also maybe reflecting some excess capacity uh, built up in China. So we'll have to just keep uh, and wait and see. Are we seeing that there being a change in terms of the um, the trade flows as well? Like we've seen a lot of trade kind of move out of China. We've seen a lot of manufacturing move out of China. You know, is is the reopening going to impact on this? Or do you think that that will still remain in the, the countries where we've seen these manufacturing hubs move to? Well, we've seen foreign direct investment into China slow pretty markedly during the pandemic period. But... It's not clear to what extent that represents a structural shift of uh, diversifying supply chains away from China or the practical difficulties of finishing FDI deals when it was hard to travel to the country. Now that China has reopened, we'll get to see more clearly if the FDI into the country recovers. Still, China is a huge source of demand. So countries trying to sell to the Chinese consumer have an incentive to be in China. But as an export base to the rest of the world because of all of the trade tensions, that is becoming a more uh, dicey proposition. Even Chinese companies we're seeing are now investing in setting up 
production facilities in other Asian countries, uh, recognizing that many um, multinationals want to diversify where their imports are uh, coming from. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out as well. We're hoping that there will not countries in the region will not be kind of forced to decouple uh, from choose sides between China and the U.S. as the trade tensions continue uh, to uh, manifest. Um, uh, the research has found that decoupling of trade into two blocks, a China block and a Western block or a U.S. block, would most hurt the, actually these small economies that trade with both countries, uh, whereas the U.S. and China themselves would be fairly resilient because they have large domestic markets and many trade relations relationships that they can kind of adjust in response to different types of um, trade tensions. And on that point, you know, we're, we were seeing a lot of concern around geopolitics in the region and beyond. And, you know, we're seeing that play out uh, across the world in different ways, whether it's increasing prices of food or oil and gas supplies, for example, but also concerns that maybe are leading to site protectionism or a reduction in trade flows. Overall, really, how do you think that these geopol geopolitical impacts are going to hit the economy and the growth across Asia? We're very hopeful that the geopolitics will not lead to highly high levels of protectionism. But I must say, you know, we're very concerned that the world is moving in that direction and not just the trade policies in terms of U.S.-China trade war, sanctions regimes being used more frequently as a tool of geopolitics, but also uh, protectionist industrial policies that have local content requirements that really complicate uh, the free flow of goods and services. And that will hurt Asia. It will hurt, really, um, all of the main actors globally because uh, a fragmented trading system leads to much lower efficiency in how production is organized, but also it prevents innovation by the leading global firms. So it prevents um, the continued reduction in the cost of really important um, technologies and services. And that has implications also for climate change. So we would like to see free trade in environmental goods and services where countries in Asia could get access at a cheap price to the best technologies, and uh, protectionist regimes really make that less possible, both in terms of if you're not uh, in the right block, you may have to pay more, but also the global efficiency is reduced, which, which of course will m mean that costs will not get as low as they could be. And you've already talked around the environmental sides of things. And here at the meetings, it's a really key theme this year. There's a lot of talk of the impact of environmental issues, but also the opportunities of moving towards green technologies. How do you think this will impact on the region's economies? Well, we just issued a report uh, titled Asia in the Global Transition to Net Zero. And one thing we emphasize in the report is that the economic returns to tackling climate change are very high. Of course, they require that that there's global cooperation and progress towards the uh, carbon reduction goals. Um, but because damages of climate uh, or temperature rise uh, is really high in Asia because 
Asia is just more vulnerable to disasters associated with um, climate change. Has a lot of population uh, on co in coastal areas vulnerable to sea rise. Agriculture is also very vulnerable to the changes in temperature in some parts of some regions of uh, Asia. Uh, we've calculated that if you just look at a cost benefit of really being aggressive in tackling the climate change issue, assuming it's successfully globally, that the benefits outweighs the cost by uh, many times, right? And uh, so this suggests that if you think about welfare, broadly speaking, um, that it's a good investment to tackle climate change. Now, there's a lot of financing challenges to making uh, the investments that are needed to really make more rapid progress, uh, kind of an accelerated scenario for uh, reaching net zero. Um, and so that will require a lot of efforts by uh, both internationally, multilateral development banks, including ADB, um, and uh, mobilizing other sources of uh, finance uh, domestically, et cetera. Many countries are concerned about the consequences potentially for impacting their economic growth. So we emphasize really that, number one, renewable technologies now are very efficient, so you can actually get a very good return on investments in renewables. The other thing that we're trying to emphasize is that um, to really make the transition efficient and minimize the cost that it will take, it's very important for countries to establish some types of carbon pricing mechanisms to provide the right signal to all of the producers and all of the consumers in their country to make the changes um, that are going to promote uh, a more rapid decarbonization. Um, and uh, the first step in doing that is to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies, which are actually still quite prevalent throughout the region uh, and which obviously create a distortion working in the wrong direction. But it's also important to uh, support the development of emissions trading systems or carbon tax policies that can create a good price signal to guide change. If you just use command and control type approaches, they just can't match the efficiency of reaching the net zero targets um, in an efficient way. And it's also important once those pricing systems are developed to have them integrated across countries so that the countries that are most efficient in tackling climate and reducing carbon can can pull more of their weight but be compensated uh, for those efforts. And that will also increase the global efficiency or the regional efficiency towards meeting the net zero goals. Great. Albert, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. I'm speaking now with Seve Panyu, who is Minister of Finance for Tuvalu. Thank you for joining me now. Oh, my pleasure. So here at the conference, there's a really big focus on the environment. And as you've made clear in some of the panels, Tuvalu is very much at kind of the bleeding edge of what's happening with the environment. Can you give us some examples for the people listening, really, what the impact of climate change is actually on the island? Of course, uh, this is a, another opportunity to advocate for the plight of the small island. Uh, developing states, such as my country, Tuvalu, which is a low-lying atoll nation, barely uh, two, three meters above sea level, and we are constantly uh, being impacted by storm surge, cyclones, and all these uh, sea level rise effects. 
in my country and the small low-lying atoll nations. So um, that picture is well uh, recognized and um, taken on board by uh, the uh, international community. Um, for this particular ADB annual meeting in Incheon in, in Korea, um, it's a discussion on how ADB and the multilateral development banks and other international finance institutions could uh, restructure their financing modality to address these climate change effects on our countries. Um, so it is an ongoing discussion in terms of how uh, these MDBs and IFIs could escalate climate finance and um, have that readily made available uh, in terms of speed and, and streamlining of their uh, access modalities to benefit the countries that uh, require that climate finance to address their climate change and sea level rise impacts. And that was something that came up yesterday on the panel was really around how the importance of maybe changing the criteria in order to decide who gets funding and how that funding is given. So how do you think would best be served now for islands like Tuvalu who maybe don't have a huge economy, huge GDP to maybe pay back loans, how, et cetera. How do you think the best way to provide financing for your islands would be? We're calling for a creation of a, and recognition of a, a special um, funding window for SITs, for small island developing states, and in particular, the most vulnerable of the SITs, which are the low-lying atoll nations, such as my country. Um, it needed to have a special uh, criteria, special access procedure, a, a special window, um, so that uh, my country and the SIDS could readily access those money and be able to implement adaptation programs to address the impacts of uh, sea level rise and climate change. And kind of finally to wrap up, really, what do you think are the biggest challenges now that we still face in order to address the issues around climate change. You said there was a quote at the end of the panel where you were saying that every action that we do, whether it's driving a car, taking a plane, all of this will ultimately have an impact on Tuvalu. So what do you think now is the, the main message that you need to take away from this in order to think about how we tackle climate change? It um, boils down to the individual pattern of a lifestyle and also the community and the society as a whole. Uh, including the private sector and, and governments, and how they should adjust and reform their policy and their lifestyle and their needs uh, to ensure that there is minimum impact uh, on climate change and sea level rise. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.